let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 13. John chapter 13, for those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the gospel of John. And as we continue in our study of this book, we come uh, this morning to John chapter 13, verse 18. And my goal uh, this morning is to cover uh, verses 18 through 30. And the title of the message, uh, as you would see on the sermon notes, if you were able to grab a copy of them, is a faith-worthy Savior on the cusp of his betrayal. A faith-worthy Savior on the cusp of his betrayal. This past Monday, um, as many of you know, was the 22 year anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center uh, towers and the Pentagon. And um, my wife and I on Monday night uh, watched a program, I think it was on the Discovery Channel, about what that day was like for President George W. Bush and his team uh, who was aboard uh, Air Force One. Uh, President Bush was in Sarasota, Florida when the attacks happened and um, after the second plane had hit the building and even after the plane had hit the Pentagon, he immediately wanted to go to Washington, D.C. to manage the crisis uh, from there, Uh, but his Secret Service team would not allow uh, him to do that because they had received flawed intelligence that there was a second wave of attacks that were coming. They rushed him onto Air Force One and the plane took off and headed west rather than heading north. Uh, while in the air, they got some faulty intelligence that Air Force One was going to be the next target of the terrorist. So the pilot of the plane flew Air Force One at 45,000 feet uh, in the air, which began to hinder the president's team from being able to communicate with people on the ground. At one point, only two out of the 20 telephones on the plane were working, which means that for a few hours, the president and his team actually knew less about what was going on on the ground than you and I knew just from watching television. At one point while in flight, George W. Bush looked across his desk at Mike Morrell, who was the CIA presidential briefer, and asked him about these attacks. And he said, Michael, who did this? And Michael said, Mr. President, I have not seen any intelligence or any new information that would take us to a perpetrator. I think when we get to the end of the trail, we will find bin Laden and I would bet my children's future on it. The president said, when will we know? And Mr. Morrell said, we may know soon or it may take some time. Mr. Morrell said that George Bush sat there for five minutes and didn't say a word. It was a frustrating day for President Bush. He was the commander in chief of our military, but in the first several 
hours of the crisis, he didn't feel like he could be where he wanted to be, where he felt like he needed to be, and he didn't feel like he knew what it was that he needed to know. It wasn't until the plane landed in Omaha, Nebraska, that Bush began receiving intelligence that others already knew before he did. At that point, he demanded that his team return him to Washington, D.C., and this time he refused to take no for an answer. He returned to D.C. at 6.44 p.m., 10 hours after the first plane hit the Trade Center Tower. George W. Bush is human, and so was his team. So we can, I think, make some allowances for the fact that they were caught off guard by these attacks and even for the misunderstandings and the communication breakdowns that happened in the hours that followed. But in our passage today, we're going to observe that Jesus is no George W. Bush. And we will see that what Jesus is on the cusp of is something infinitely greater than what happened on 9-11 22 years ago. Jesus is on the verge of the most important event in the history of the world, an event that will loom larger and prove more seismic than any other event in human history. And that event is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This crucifixion was brought on by Jesus' arrest on the Thursday night of the Passion Week. And his arrest was brought on by an act of betrayal by a traitor who was actually among the 12 disciples of Jesus. We learn from Matthew 26 that prior to the Passover supper, Judas had already gone to the chief priest and agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. After that transaction was completed, Judas then shows up at the Passover supper, thinking that no one has any idea of what he has done and what he intends to do. But Jesus knows. In fact, in our passage today, John presents to us a picture of Jesus who is very much in the know and very much in command. John's goal in writing this gospel is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, we might have life in his name. And the image that John presents to us in our passage today on the threshold of his betrayal should give us abundant reason to believe in Jesus The way we're going to break down our study of this passage is we're going to observe three actions of Jesus on the cusp of his betrayal, which show him to be worthy of our faith. Three actions of Jesus, which show him to be worthy of our faith on the very cusp of his betrayal. Action number one, you can fill in the blank if you have your notes with you. He foretells his betrayal. 
he foretells his betrayal. You will recall from last week that Jesus and his disciples are gathered in a room for the Passover supper. When that supper approached, Jesus got up and he washed his disciples' feet. But you will recall that when Jesus was doing this washing and dealing with Peter in verse 10, he turned to all of his disciples and said, look at verse 10, and you are clean, but not all of you. When he was done washing all of their feet, He urged them to follow his example and then said to them in verse 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. But then listen to what he says in verse 18, and this is where we pick up today. He says, I do not speak of all of you. In other words, he is saying not all of you will experience the blessedness of knowing and doing these things that I have been modeling for you and talking about. He continues and says in verse 18, I know the ones I have chosen. You can write this reference down. John chapter 6 verse 70, Jesus said, did I myself not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. Jesus chose all 12 of his disciples, including Judas. And he is saying here in verse 20 of John 13 that he knows every one of them, including the one who will turn out to be a devil, a traitor. So you might ask, why would Jesus choose men, one of whom would prove to be a traitor to him? According to his words here in verse 18, he did such choosing, look at the text, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. And here's the scripture. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. This passage Jesus is quoting is Psalm 41 verse 9. In this psalm, David is lamenting how he is being attacked and even mocked by his enemies, but he also laments the fact that he has been betrayed by a close friend who has been in his home and has eaten his very bread, who is now lifting up his heel against David. The expression about lifting up the heel could speak of someone lifting up their heel in order to drop it down on someone to grind them into the dirt or to kick them like a horse kicking someone with their hind feet. Whatever the meaning is here, it speaks of betrayal by a close friend whom David had showed hospitality to and even shared his food with who ended up showing David the bottom of his shoe. This was the experience of David in the Old Testament and we're now learning that it was destined to be the experience of the greater David now who is Jesus. And Jesus is saying here, this has been God's plan all along from centuries past, which is why I followed my father's directions and chose among the 12 a man 
who would end up lifting up his heel against me. Now, why is Jesus talking about this matter to his disciples right now? Observe what he says in verse 19. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Jesus wants his disciples to know that what is about to happen is not going to catch him by surprise. He is foretelling that it will happen in fulfillment of scripture. And I'm going to read this literally from the Greek in verse 19. So that when it does occur, you may believe that I am, period. The word he is not in the Greek text. Jesus' words here have him saying that he is more than merely the Messiah. He is more than merely the greater David that has been promised in the Old Testament, but he is even the great I am, Jehovah. And one of the proofs of his identity is that he knows in advance that there will be someone among the 12 who will raise up his heel against him. He knew that. As awful and painful as Judas's betrayal of Jesus will be, Jesus actually wants the event of Judas's betrayal to be a faith-building event for his disciples. When the moment comes that his disciples realize that Judas has betrayed Jesus, Jesus wants his disciples at that point to think to themselves, Wow, Jesus must really be the Messiah. He must really be the great I am, the true Messiah, because he predicted, he foretold that this would happen, just as it happened to David also. Clearly, the Jesus who is speaking here is no helpless victim of his enemies. He is very much in the know and in command on this night And this image of Jesus gets reinforced by what he goes on to say in verse 20. In verse 20, look at the text. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, at first blush, as you're just reading this passage as it unfolds, it It seems odd for Jesus to make this statement here, but his meaning is clear enough. His words here in verse 20 make it abundantly clear to the other 11 disciples that the mission is still on. Jesus is saying, one of you will lift up your heel against me, but the rest of you are my apostles, my sent ones. I have sent you on a mission to fulfill in the coming days. And my imminent betrayal is not going to hinder that at all. Each of the rest of you will do what I have sent you to do. And as you go forth in my name with my message of salvation through me, anyone who receives you and this message that you will be delivering will be receiving me. And the person who is thus receiving me is receiving my father who sent me. 
What's evident from Jesus' words here in verse 20 is that no matter what evil is ever done against Christ and against his cause, nothing that anyone ever does will succeed in hindering his mission as he works through his people in building his church. Let the enemies of Christ do their worst against him, but Christ's mission will still go on and Christ will still be on his throne and taking notes about those who receive his messengers. Again, Jesus is in total control of events as they are unfolding here in this moment. He is in the know and in command and his mission is still on. Yet though he is sovereign and very much in command, he is no unfeeling sovereign. Observe what happens in verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. Jesus is in this moment already feeling the pangs of hurt and personal turmoil over what it is that awaits him. The moment of his betrayal is at hand and Jesus is already feeling personally the sting of this betrayal and a heaviness over the chain of events that this betrayal is about to set in motion leading to his death upon the cross whereupon he will receive God's judgment upon himself for our sins. John says here in verse 21 that being troubled in spirit, Jesus, look at the text, testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The Greek word that is translated betray means to give someone over, to hand someone over to another person. As we have seen studying the gospel of John thus far, we've, we've already seen how the religious rulers were desperately wanting to arrest Jesus so that they could put him to death. We've already read where the religious leaders have sent out word to everyone that if anyone knows Jesus' whereabouts, they should report that news to them so that they could arrest him. And Jesus is looking over his disciples right now and saying, one of you will betray me. In other words, one of you will hand me over to the authorities who plan to put me to death. Again, in Matthew 22, go ahead and write this reference down. Matthew 22, verses 14 through 16, you learn that prior to this Passover meal, Judas has already gone to the chief priest and said to them in Matthew twenty-two fifteen, what are you willing to give me to deliver him to you? And in response, Matthew tells us that they weighed out 30 pieces of silver and gave that to him. And Matthew tells us that from then on, Judas began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. So keep in mind that Judas has already gone to the chief priests. 
He's already been paid. He probably has the 30 pieces of silver jangling in his pockets right now. He thought he was sneaky enough about it so that no one would know what he has done and what he intends to do. But now Judas hears Jesus saying, one of you will betray me. Imagine how those words must have fallen on Judas's ears and the exposure that he must have began to feel. As for the other disciples, Jesus' announcement leaves them wondering about the identity of the betrayer. And this leads us to the second action of Jesus on the cusp of his betrayal, which shows him to be worthy of our faith. Number two, he identifies his betrayer to be Judas. He identifies his betrayer to be Judas. Observe how Jesus' disciples respond to his announcement. Look at verse 22. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Their ignorance over who the betrayer is um, points to a couple things. For starters, the fact that the disciples are at a loss to know who the betrayer is tells us that Judas has done a tremendous job of hiding his true soul from Jesus' disciples. He's done such a good job of it that after three years of him hanging out with them, they still have no clue that it was, was he who would betray Jesus. They had labored with Judas on ministry trips and had spent a ton of time together with Judas. They evidently trusted Judas with the money box, which means that Judas would have probably been near the higher end of the list of disciples that these men trusted the most. Think about it this way. If a handful of us went on a three-week mission trip together, we would probably get a pretty good idea of the true character of each person on that trip, right? Well, how about a three-year mission trip? That's what the disciples have been on with Judas, and not a one of them suspects that Judas would be the one who would betray Jesus. They're at a loss, John says, to know of which one that uh, he was speaking of. Their lack of knowledge of the truth about Judas ought to leave all of us profoundly humbled and reminded that we don't always know other people, even in the church, as well as we think we do. There can be professing disciples of Christ among us that we can think that we know quite well and yet not know the true darkness that is in them. We should never underestimate the capacity of people for evil and we should never underestimate the degree to which unbelievers and devils can insinuate themselves into our midst without us even recognizing them for what they are. 
at least for a time. So here in verse 22, we see that the disciples are looking at one another, trying to imagine who Jesus' betrayer might be, and they can't land on any person in particular. Their ignorance of who this betrayer will turn out to be also tells us another thing, and that is how impressive it really is that Jesus knew who the betrayer would be. What none of the other disciples could perceive, Jesus could perceive because he knew what was in the hearts of men. Jesus' knowledge of each of his disciples surpassed even their own knowledge of themselves. And his knowledge of their fellow disciples surpassed the knowledge that any disciple had of any one of his comrades. Well, Peter, as we can imagine, is dying to know who the betrayer is. So observe what happens in verses 23 and 24. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. This is the first occasion in this gospel where John refers to himself as one whom Jesus loved. And we're gonna uh, explore this self-description of John in a couple weeks when we are back in this passage. But here, let's just note, we see John referring to himself as, look at the text, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. John also speaks of himself in verse 23 as reclining on Jesus' bosom, which evidently formed an indelible memory in John's mind because he brings it up again in the final chapter of this gospel. Imagine, just to get an idea of the scene here, imagine each of the disciples reclining at a table lying low to the ground with each one lying on their left side, propped up on cushions on their left elbow around this table. And John would have been to Jesus' right, which means that his head would have been quite close to Jesus' breast. Some of us in our Western culture uh, appreciate more personal space than others do. And this sort of setup for a meal would have made some of us uncomfortable with such closeness. But John was very comfortable with Jesus being in his personal space. And Jesus, wonderfully, was very comfortable with John being in his personal space as they are eating together on this memorable occasion. John gives us this information about his close proximity to Jesus to help us picture the scene. And having done so, John tells us in verse 24 the following. So Simon Peter gestured to him, to John, and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking when he says that one of you will betray me. It seems that Peter assumes that John has some inside information given his proximity to Jesus. For 
Peter is literally asking John to tell the rest of the disciples who the betrayer will be. Only problem is, John doesn't know either. So observe what happens in verse 25. He, this is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? Imagine what it must have been like for John to know in the years that followed that he leaned his head upon the bosom of the one who is right now in the bosom of the father. And on the occasion that he did so, he said to Jesus, Lord, who is it? Who is your betrayer? Verse 26, Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. For this Passover meal, the dipping sauce would have featured something like bitter herbs and dates and raisins and vinegar to add flavor to the food. Each of the disciples would have been dipping their bread in such a bowl as they ate. And it seems likely that there were a handful of such bowls of dipping sauce that two or maybe three of them would share together. Back in this day, to eat with someone was a sign of friendship and respect. But to go so far as dipping a morsel of food with your hand into a bowl and handing that to another person to take a bite out of was a whole other level of intimacy. Try that with someone. Sometimes when my wife and I are at a restaurant, she will so love what she has ordered and what she is eating that she will want me to enjoy it with her. So sometimes she'll put the food that she is eating and enjoying on her fork and she will urge me to try it. She'll hold the fork up to my mouth and I will then eat the food off her fork and then she will proceed to eat with that same fork. No one else in my life ever does that <laughs> to me, but she does. Along those lines, it's, it's not unusual at all to see a newly married couple at a wedding. What do they do? One of the first acts as a married couple, they take a piece of cake and put that cake to each other's mouths. They feed each other. And we all see that and view that as totally normal in the context of the deep intimacy of that relationship, right? And that is essentially the equivalent of what Jesus is doing here with Judas, using his hands and dipping a morsel of bread into a bowl of sauce and inviting Judas to take a bite out of it. This is a deeply personal gesture that is intimate enough that our modern minds would notice involves the sharing of germs. But observe what happens in the second half of verse 26. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon, 
Iscariot. By the way, the word Iscariot likely means man of Kerioth, which would indicate that Judas's dad hearkens from the city of Kerioth, just as Judas did. We know nothing else about Judas's dad, but John's mention of his dad here reminds us that Judas was the son of a mother and a father who will soon be grieving his fate. The fact that Jesus could hand Judas the morsel while reclining at his or on his left elbow would make it very likely that Judas is seated to Jesus' left, sitting at Jesus' left hand. We learn from Matthew twenty-two twenty-three that Jesus and Judas shared this bowl of dipping sauce, which would make it likely that they were seated next to each other with Judas at Jesus' left side, close enough for this moment that John is describing here, which would mean that while John is at Jesus' breast, Jesus would be at Judas's breast. This goes against conventional wisdom of what we often think, but commentators like Leon Morris and D.A. Carson, as well as many others, point out that the highest seat of honor at a supper like this is actually the seat to the left of the host, which in this case, Jesus is the host. And this would mean that if Judas is truly sitting at Jesus' left hand, then Judas would be occupying the seat of highest honor next to Jesus. And John would be occupying the seat of second highest honor at Jesus' right hand. Either way, Jesus has just identified for John who it is who will betray him but he has done so in a way that would not make it obvious to the other disciples in this moment at least. I mean, if Jesus had said to John, you'll know who the betrayer is because I'm going to slap him or I'm going to point an accusing finger at him, well, then everyone would know. But instead, he uses this amazing gesture. The other disciples observing this Uh, would likely take Jesus' gesture to mean that Judas is very special to Jesus, being the only man that Jesus has shared his food with in this way. Only John would know the meaning of what Jesus has done here, and even he would be left having a lot to process about the meaning of what Jesus has just done. Trust me, John did not witness Jesus feeding Judas this morsel of food that he has just dipped in the bowl and then say to himself, oh, so the betrayer is Judas. Not at all. It's only on later reflection that John would realize with absolute clarity the truth of what Jesus is pointing out here. What happens next is as unsettling as it is sobering which leads us to the third act of Jesus on the cusp of his betrayal, which shows him to be worthy of our faith. 
Number three, he directs Judas to act quickly on what he intends to do. He directs Judas to act quickly on what he intends to do. Observe what happens in verse 27. After the morsel, in other words, after Judas partook of the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Commentators point out, and I think rightly so, that Jesus sharing this morsel with Judas was his last ditch attempt at friendship with Judas. His final appeal for Judas to repent and make the right choice. From the standpoint of human responsibility, it is not too late for Judas to fall at Jesus' feet and cry out for Jesus to rescue him from the darkness that is engulfing his soul. But Judas obviously refused to allow his heart to be melted down by this gesture of love from Jesus. And we know this because in verse 27, John writes the scariest words that could ever be written about any person. He says, Satan then entered into him. This is not some low-level demon entering into Judas in this moment. This is Satan himself entering Judas and taking possession of him. You can count on the fact that Satan is only entering Judas at this moment because Judas has given him permission. At some point earlier, In his life, Judas gave Satan a foothold in his life, a foothold that grew larger and larger over time. And Satan took every inch that Judas gave him. With 10,000 prior moments of compromise and sin, the soul of Judas was reshaped and darkened in such a way as to render his soul a fit habitation for Satan. We've already learned from chapter 12 that Judas used to steal from the money that was donated to Jesus' ministry. Perhaps he initially stole a little bit and thought to himself, I'll pay this back eventually. But one theft led to another and then another and then another with sinful rationalizations along the way, leaving Judas with a darkened soul in the state that it is right now. In this process of decline, Judas was likely able to entertain sinful thoughts and then have those thoughts go away rather freely and seemed to leave him alone for a while, giving Judas the illusion that he could entertain sin and keep it all under control. But on this night, the devil comes to Judas and enters him and takes possession of him. And the devil will not be leaving Notice how verse 27 ends. John said, therefore, in other words, therefore, because Satan entered into him, Jesus said to him, what you do, 
present tense. In other words, what you're already doing, what you're already up to, Judas, do quickly. This is the awful moment when Jesus is releasing Judas to finish what he has started and to do what his heart is already bent on doing. This is Jesus giving Judas over to a reprobate mind and to the lusts of his heart. This is Jesus saying, you go, Judas. You do you and hurry up while you are at it. What a scary moment this is when God hands somebody over to their sin and releases them. From another standpoint, this is also Jesus commanding Judas to leave the room. Jesus has a lot that he intends to say to his true disciples to prepare them for the mission ahead that we'll see recorded in uh, chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. This is a mission that will not include Judas. And in order for Jesus to be able to accomplish that with his true disciples, Judas, the outsider, needs to leave. He needs to leave the room. As a man possessed by Satan himself, Judas no longer belongs in this room. This is also in Jesus giving him this command, what you do, do quickly. This is Jesus letting Judas know who's actually in control here. Judas may have thought that he had Jesus in his clutches, but Jesus is letting Judas know that Judas is the one who's in Jesus' hands. And Jesus is the one calling the shots here. This is also Jesus challenging Judas, saying, basically, do your worst, Judas. Betray me, and I'll still prevail. Actually, the most literal reading of what Jesus says to Judas is, what you do, do more quickly. Do more quickly which indicates that Judas might have been thinking of waiting until a more opportune time than this particular evening. But Jesus is telling him to get on with what he intends to do. Jesus is saying to Judas, if you are bent on betraying me in God's sovereign timing, this is now the right time, the best time. Jesus is clearly the one who has command of this moment. Jesus is the one who's in charge, not Judas. As for the other disciples who witnessed this exchange, they were clueless. Observe what John says in verse 28. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. When John says what he says here, about no one knowing, he's probably including himself, letting us know that even he wasn't comprehending in the moment what was going on when Jesus said to Judas, what you do, do quickly. Look at verse 29, which explains the thinking of the disciples. For some, in other words, some of the disciples were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should go or that he should give something to the poor. 
Understand that this evening of the Passover meal was the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, which would last for seven days. So it seems that some of the disciples assumed that Jesus was sending Judas off to purchase some supplies for the feast of unleavened bread and the events that would take place over the next week. Also on the evening of the Passover, the gates of the temple would be opened and the poor would be allowed to assemble in the temple and the people of Israel would show up at the temple on the night of Passover and give something to the poor. And given this practice, some of the disciples are assuming that Jesus must be sending Judas off to make a donation on their behalf to the poor. Whatever these other disciples are actually thinking, they are assuming the very best about Judas because they are clueless to the real truth about Judas that Jesus is fully in the know about. What the disciples realize later is that Jesus was sending Judas off to do the evil that his heart was bent on doing, the evil that he had already transacted with the chief priests to do, the evil that he had already received 30 pieces of silver to do, to betray Jesus and to hand him over to the Jewish authorities on this very evening, which would lead to Jesus' arrest and then his crucifixion on the following day. Observe what John says in verse 30. So after receiving the morsel, he, Judas, went out immediately and it was night. Judas doesn't hesitate. He takes off to go betray Jesus. And in a stroke of literary genius, John writes the words, and it was night. In all likelihood, when this Passover meal began, there was some light in the sky still from the setting sun. But it was right as Judas was going out that John notices how dark it is outside. And somehow this particular evening seemed darker than any night that John had ever seen before. As for Judas, he walked out of a well-lit room in which the light of the world was reclining He walked out of that room with the taste of a delicious morsel of food still in his mouth that Jesus had shared with him. He walked out of this room with his feet still tingling from the washing that Jesus had given to them. With Satan having entered into him, Judas walks out of this room and into the darkest night that any man has ever known. A night that for Judas will never end. Judas will end up going to the authorities and then leading them to the place where they could find Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He will betray the son of man with a kiss and Jesus will be arrested and stand trial. According to Matthew 27, after Jesus is condemned to death, Judas will be overcome with the emotion of remorse 
and he will return to the religious leaders and say to them, this is literally what Judas will say to them, I have sinned by betraying the innocent blood. And he will throw the 30 pieces of silver onto the temple floor at the feet of these religious leaders and then go out and hang himself. And from Acts chapter one, we learn that Judas's body, either before he dies or after he dies, will fall from the rope and land in a field, ripping open his abdomen and causing his bowels to gush out. And if all of that is not bad enough, Judas would then awaken in hell where he will spend eternity under the judgment of almighty God. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, Jesus himself will say that it would have been better for Judas if he had never been born. In John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus speaks of Judas as the son of perdition. In other words, the son of destruction who perished. Think about all the advantages that Judas had. Of all the time that Judas could have lived throughout human history, he lived during the days when Jesus walked the earth. Of all the people living on the planet at that time, Judas was chosen to be one of the 12 whom Jesus picked to be his disciples and to travel with him wherever he went. Judas had the privilege of being commissioned by Jesus to go out and and preach the gospel of the kingdom and to heal the sick and even to cast demons out of people in Jesus' name. Judas was one of the 12 who had the privilege of seeing Jesus feed the 5,000 and calm the storm and raise Lazarus from the dead along with witnessing uh, most all of the other miracles that Jesus did. Judas heard virtually all of Jesus' teaching and saw how gracious and loving Jesus was towards sinners. He saw this one that John describes as full of grace and truth. And it was Judas who probably had the honored seat to Jesus left at this Passover supper where Jesus had was at Judas's breast. It was Judas to whom Jesus offered a tasty morsel of food in a gesture of intimate friendship after washing his feet. And yet with all of those privileges, Judas betrays Jesus and ends up experiencing a fate so awful that Jesus says it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. How does one exist in hell, in eternal hell, with the memory of the privileges that were Judas's? And yet how he gave it all away for 30 pieces of silver. This is the deceitfulness of sin. Behold the power of an idol to so distort the soul of a man that he would stare 
at the beautiful Jesus for three years and walk away from him and sell him for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver that just hours later he will end up hurling onto the temple floor, not even wanting that anymore. At the end of his life, Judas will be without Jesus. He will be without the 30 pieces of silver. He will be without any consolation and his torment will be so great that he will take his own life and then be ushered into eternal perdition. And yet, and yet, John would want us to know that this passage today isn't so much about Judas. It's about the glory of Jesus who saw right into Judas's heart and knew what Judas was up to and foretold his betrayal before it even happened. In John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, John tells us these words, Jesus knows all men And he doesn't need anyone to testify to him concerning man, for he himself knows what is in man. And we see that truth on display in our passage today. We see also how Jesus is not threatened by Judas's betrayal. He knows that his father will take what Judas intends for evil and work it out for the ultimate good which is his crucifixion upon a cross so that through the shed blood of Jesus on that cross, God might provide atonement for sinners like you and me and make us right with God. You see, if Jesus didn't want to die on the cross for our sins, he would have never let Judas leave this room, right? But he let him leave in order to set in motion a chain of events that would make salvation available to you and to me. Jesus sees all the way through you and into your heart, just as he did Judas's. And it's precisely because of what Jesus sees and knows about you and about me that he lets Judas walk out of this room on this Passover night and lets himself get arrested and then slain upon a cross in order that he might be our savior who saves us from our sins. Will you let him, if you have not already, will you let Jesus be your savior? I hope you will. One takeaway from this passage should not be that we each go on a hunt to find out who the Judases are in our church. Yes, we certainly need to be discerning, but our passage today teaches us that Jesus knows who the Judases are, and he will reveal them and expose them at the proper time And whatever those Judases may try to do against Jesus, God will harness their evil deeds to serve his own purposes in the world and what they mean for evil 
God will turn out for good. The gates of hell, no matter how many Judases there are, will never prevail against the church. Amen? But what happens to Judas in our passage today should sober all of us deeply and remind us of the danger of giving Satan a foothold in our life. What happens to Judas should remind us that there is such a thing as saying no to Jesus one time too many. This is what happens to everyone who ends up in hell. And I pray that it would not happen to anyone in this room. But our passage today also should leave us immensely grateful for God's grace in our lives, right? As I studied this passage this week, I found myself thinking of, of all the times when I have chosen sin over Jesus and walked away from Jesus and into some stupid night of my own choosing. How foolish I have been throughout my life, even as a believer, on far too many occasions. But instead of letting me go into that night that I walked into, Jesus came after me and he found me in the night and drew me back to himself. And he's done that again and again and again. The difference between me and Judas is not that I'm a better man than Judas. The difference is God's sovereign grace through Jesus for which I will spend eternity praising God for. And I know many of you feel the same way. Just in closing and knowing how some of your consciences work, I'm sure some of you are hearing this message and you're left wondering if you're asking, might I be Judas? Might I turn out to be a Judas? I hope not, but could I be a Judas? I know one way to guarantee that you won't. Just keep falling at Jesus' feet. Keep asking him every day to be your savior. Keep your eyes fixed on him. And when you fall into sin, confess your sins to him and receive the grace that he gives and let him apply his gracious forgiveness to your conscience. And don't walk away from your fellow disciples into some lonely night that only you inhabit. Stay with them and stay with Jesus. If you are here this morning and you are in the grip of some particular sin, it's not too late for you. Fall at Jesus' feet today and ask him to rescue you from the darkness that is engulfing your soul. Come out into the light and let Jesus give you the rescue that you need. The rescue that only he can give you. Let Jesus turn your many no's into a resounding yes and say yes 
to Jesus this morning. For if there's anything I'm sure of, while we can say no to Jesus one too many times, you cannot say yes to Jesus too many times. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, what a uh, powerful picture this passage gives us of both darkness and light. Where we see the depravity of Judas who walks off into the night into eternal destruction. And we see at the same time the glory of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. This story is written by John as it happened so that we would be able to behold Jesus and believe in him as the son of God and that believing we might have life in his name. I pray that if there's any here this morning, Lord, that have never bowed before you and cried out to you, Lord Jesus, for rescue, that they would do that this morning. Touch their hearts and draw them to yourself and be their Lord and their savior quicken them, Lord, give them life that they would surrender to your love today. And if there's any here, Lord, that is on destiny's edge, there may be someone in this room who might walk out of this room and into a night that will never end. I pray for them. May they know that by your grace, it is not too late for them to fall before you and cry out to you for the rescue that they need and that there is no sin that they have committed that is too big for your grace. May they see the goodness of your heart even in this passage today and come running to you, Lord Jesus knowing that you are delighted to respond to those who call upon you and to give them salvation. And help us as a church, Lord, to proclaim your greatness and your glory and your grace far and wide, for you are worthy. And it is to you that we pray and to you that we surrender ourselves. And we do so in your holy name. And all God's people said.